As a community, we've been studying Mark <coughs> for uh, the better part of this year. We've reached halfway through Mark chapter 10. Um, and I don't know about you, but I'm a slow reader. And I don't know, I've tried to do like the read the Bible in a month stuff, okay? But it just never really felt fruitful to me. And I know that some, some of us, that's, that's, that's what we do. You know, we like to read it all a lot and like get it all in there. But I, it's in one ear out the other for me, if, if that's the case. And so a few years ago, I just decided, you know what I'm going to do? Just read slow. One verse at a time. Sometimes one word at a time. And just think about it. And I think it's probably around the time that I read the verse, you know, grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God is going to last forever. And I thought it's not going anywhere. Why not just slow down and just enjoy it, you know? Uh, no rush. So that's just me. And, and if that's you, here's the thing that, the reason why I bring that up is because I always think it's good when you slow down. It, it, you, you end up getting really devotional um, and not, dare I say, mystical. I mean, you pray through it and all that, but you can miss kind of the larger picture of what's going on in any given um, book of the Bible. And so... I always like to remind myself when I go to read a, a paragraph out of the Bible, what's kind of happening in the larger, broader context. And for Mark, uh, there's a lot going on. So what I like to look at in this section between chapter 8 and chapter 10 is this is bracketed by two stories of blindness. And whenever you get a redundancy in Mark, it usually means something, okay? When you're reading through it and you're asking, why is there all these redundancies, Two references to Isaiah 6, you know, within four chapters. Or two stories of walking in water and, and the scary boat story. I mean, two stories of like thousands of people eating. I mean, that's weird. Other gospels, like, we're good with one of those. Why is there two, you know? I mean, this feeding of 5,000 and feeding of 4,000. And then you've got uh, even stories that get broken up. Um, and they begin over here and they end over here. And then there's like a bunch of stuff in the, in the middle. For Mark, this is not on accident. Uh, some people read into that and say he's just so frantic, he forgot that he already told a story about, you know, feeding the 5,000 or whatever. <coughs> but others have sort of looked at this in a, in a literary way and, and, and concluded that what he's trying to do is illustrate by bracketing things a theme so what I've been doing since September, early September, when we cracked open chapter eight again and started moving through, is thinking to myself, am I blind? This bracketed by blindness story, are these stories meant to illustrate something? And, and how does this work? And what does that point to? What does blindness look like for a follower of Jesus? Am I unable to see what Jesus is doing? What is contributing to that? Uh, what are some things that could contribute to that that's worth discerning and thinking through? And so you start to dig into it and see. I mean, I've been learning a lot. You, you look at um, Jesus making declarations about what he's about and what he's doing. And then his disciples, they deny it. They disregard it. They ignore him. Three times Jesus says in this section, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And one time the disciples look at him and they just argue, rebuke him. They say, you know, whatever that looks like, you know, Jesus quit being so negative. 
or you know, I, what the rebuke would look like. I, it just says they rebuked him. I added a little color there. Um, one time they just ignore him. They're not even answering. Now, another time today is where we'll see that it changes the subject in such a way that indicates they're not even close uh, onto the same page as him. When you look through how this all is woven together, you start to see stories about Jesus becoming like brilliant, like a bright light, like angel. I mean, if we're talking about blindness, like this is a story where it's like, hey, can you see me now? This is who I am. Or a story where they're trying to heal this kid who's being tormented by a demon in their own strength. I mean, think about that. Could, could trying to do stuff on my own contribute to me not being able to see what God's doing right or what he's able to do uh, right in front of me? What about the ways that uh, discernment is happening in these stories where you see um, check yourself if you're starting to cause people to turn away and to trip and fall away from God and uh, how money is used. Could that be a contributing factor to blindness to not being able to see what God is doing? Our love for money or holding on to certain things. Or even at that conversation about divorce um, came up where somebody's, their heart has become so hard they're unable to even, they're starting to try and justify divorce for any reason. We can get blind in, in so many different ways. And so I've been just, lo I've loved kind of getting into this section with you all. And today I'd like to invite you to just sort of read um, this last cycle here, or at least begin the last cycle um, until next week where we have the final story of blindness. And this begins in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. <clears throat> Am I blind? All right, would you please stand with me for the reading? Holy Spirit, teach us. Speak to us. Encourage us. Well, they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished while those who also followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was gonna happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the Torah teachers and they will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Then, <laughs> James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus said. Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom they have been appointed. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> Beat me to it. Jesus called them all together and said, 
You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. It will not be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life up as a ransom for many. Amen. The pattern persists here as has been happening in the past two chapters. There's this the declaration about the cross. There is a resistance to it. In this case, changing the subject to, you know, who's going to sit at his right and his left. And then there's a teaching that follows that. And this pattern has led me to sort of, you know, just explore various meanings of what the cross means. Why, when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, three days I'll arise. The teachings on this vary. And so this, this to me indicates that the cross is something that is there, that is meant to form our thinking, to shape our lives, to infect how we view things in the world. Some, sometimes I think that we would have the cross just sort of exist in, in sort of a one framework of atonement. I believe in atonement. I affirm atonement. Don't, don't hear me wrong when I say that. I just think that that is one aspect of the cross. That doesn't come up here in these verses per se. I mean, maybe in the last one you could say that. But I mean, in this whole story, um, paradigm um, of these three chapters, it's, it's infecting their way of viewing children, you know, these kids that are marginalized, that have no voice. And Jesus said, no, 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 if you want to get it, you're going to bring and welcome them into your life as well. Or uh, it, he says in the, in the first one, um, okay, if you want to get this, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. Why? That's not a work of atonement. That, that is a, an action that we would do as his followers to signify that we, are, um, that we are, are identifying with the cross. And so this becomes a, a pattern or a way of thinking. Um, we use the term cruciform. How is cruciformity affecting the way that you think and live and how power works? Now, I told you I'm a slow reader, and so this week I was in a little bit of trouble because I barely made it out of the second phrase of the first verse. Um, so if you just look at that, when Jesus, in, in verse 32, they were on their way to Jerusalem, look at this phrase, with Jesus leading the way. As soon as I read that, I knew I was in trouble because I just thought, man, I just want to pray about that and think about that Jesus leading the way. And I'm very sensitive about this because, you know, I, it's a lot of pressure to stand up. Everybody stare at you, you know, for a little while. But if you talk about Jesus leading the way and you control, like try and control what happens, you know, you become kind of a contradiction. Uh, and I've had a, a cold all week, and I just keep thinking, man, I just desperately need Jesus to lead the way. 
I've just been praying about it and thinking, when's the, when's the last time that you could say, I have given this to Jesus and I want him to lead me on this? I'm the one who says to us, I am a good shepherd. I want you to know me as that. Will you follow me? In what area of your life would, it, would, would you have it another way? I don't want to follow you in, this, in my marriage. I don't want to follow you in my finances. I mean, he is our good shepherd. Has it been a while since you just thought about that and said, I'm going to let you lead. I'm going to let go. There's a lot of stuff that's begging us to, to follow it in our world. A lot of things that are desperate for our uh, uh, loyalty and our fidelity, whether it's comfort or, or control or our own like just need and desire for this and that, for status, money, all these things. Follow me, follow, do what I want you to do. There's a universal call to every single one of us where Jesus says, come follow me. That invitation still stands. If you've never said in your life, I'm a follower of Jesus, maybe today's the day where you say, I give up. Whatever I'm doing is not working. I've been following stuff and it leads to dysfunction and, and it leads to all kinds of strange things in my life. I'm gonna follow Jesus. So if we consider what it looks like to let Jesus lead the way, what are some things that we can think through from this verse? What, that, what, that would, what would come along with that? <coughs> the first thing that comes to mind for me when Jesus leads the way is this, lesson one, there will be a cross involved. If you let Jesus lead the way in your life, there will be a cross involved. And um, so, I, and I look at this section where Jesus declares he's going to Jerusalem to die. And I've been kind of just wondering about it uh, for a little bit here. And, and I just want to throw an idea out towards you. Now, I, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here, all right? But, um, but think about this. When you compare this to the other two times in, the, in this section where Jesus declares he's going to the cross, this one seems pretty explicit. So my question is, why? What do you do with that? Why, why did it get to this place? I mean, the first one in chapter eight, he's like, I'm going to the cross to die. I'm gonna suffer many things at the hands of this. The second one, he's like, I'm gonna be handed over. I'm gonna die, and in three days I'll arise. And this one, okay, going to Jerusalem, be handed over to uh, the chief priests and the Torah teachers, and then they're gonna condemn me to death, hand me over to the Gentiles. And guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna mock me, spit on me, flog Kill me in the three days I'll arise. I mean, that is a lot of details that have been kind of missing or, or assumed in the, in the pr previous ones. Now, that may mean nothing. Let's let the reader understand. But um, I would sometimes <coughs> wonder sort of anecdotally, like what if the farther along that you get on the path with Jesus, the more clear the cross becomes? Or, or the more focused it becomes, the more details that come along with what that's going to look like. You know, like step one, you know, you, you follow Jesus on the path to the cross, and, and he says, this is what it looks like. You have to forgive. 
So you say, okay, I forgive you. But then as you go farther along, isn't it, wouldn't it be, I, I don't want you just to forgive. I also want you to love. Okay, I forgive you and I love you. And then it's honing in even more, getting farther and farther along. This cross and what it looks like in our lives is getting developed. I don't want you to just forgive and love. How about I want you to serve? I forgive you, I love you, and I want to do something for you. I mean, the farther we get, the more developed the cross is in our lives. The more central it becomes, the more clear that this is what it looks like. This is not less. So I tell you, to me, it's very tempting to do the opposite. Put the cross back in lesson one when you were in Sunday school a thousand years ago. And then, um, you know, the older we get, the more mature we get. We got to think of this other stuff. You know, I know love of God is shown in the self-sacrificial nature of the cross. And we're here to put God on display. But I really have to figure out this theological issue. I really need to make sure that I'm on the right side of this topic or debate. Or even think about this, when we, we, we leave the cross back in you know, our past because we're trying to be mature. This is a tricky one. Now that I've grown and I'm mature, I know that this situation, I'm okay to opt out on, on self-sacrificial love because you know, it's unwise. We, we can give ourselves permission, in a sense, as we grow to say the cross is no longer interesting. It's no longer relevant. It's not in focus. It's peripheral. And I would say, I don't know. I just wonder if Jesus is leading the way, if it's going to continue to be placed in the center, if it's going to be continue to put in our focus, on our, in our lifestyle as a pattern of something uh, that we are going to continue to develop again and again and again. But lesson number one when Jesus leads the way is that a cross is going to be involved. But all three of these cross references are also referencing resurrection. There, this isn't a hopeless message, one where we just become the doormat to the world. We become the doormat to the world, but we do it in a hope-filled message that we have resurrection that we have life, that there's something inside of this very uh, framework that leads to the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Now think about how this works because these guys do not get it, all right? So this, this is gonna be a little bit of a development here. So when, um, <coughs> so when he says this, disciples are like, good for you, I think. I have a question. I, I'm thinking about something else. You know, they're like, change the subject. We've been wondering for a while now, okay? Jesus, just want to throw this out there. When you sit in glory, can we sit on your right and left? Me and my brother, James and John, right? And it's not like it's a bad thing to say that. You could say, you know, they're just saying to Jesus, we love you, we want to be your right-hand man. Like, we want to be, we want to, we want to tell you right now that we're all in. But the means matter to God. And the means through which that they want to get to the right and to the left of God or of Jesus, um, you can tell are not on the same, uh, uh, that this is not a part of Jesus' imagination. 
And when you have the wrong means to maybe the right ends in the kingdom of heaven, that can completely redefine what the end is. Um, I don't want to sound too confused when I say that. As I was saying that, it sort of sounded weird. What they desire isn't bad, but how they get there is bad. It's the same for the triumphant entry. On paper, when you see the triumphant entry in a couple chapters here, this looks good. All these people singing, wow, we love you, Jesus, waving their stuff. And then Jesus, you know, camera pans to him. He starts crying. It grieves him what they're doing. So on the one hand, it's good that they're saying we love you, Jesus. On another hand, the means that they're, you know, they're off on the means. And so the means matter. If the means in the triumphant entry or even in this are um, no cross, just resurrection, no cross, just uh, the benefit, or, or worse, if the means are, we're, we assume you're going to conquer all the people we don't like, all the threats, all the people out there that are different than us, those are the bad people, and you're gonna, you know, and when you're in glory and we're over top of them, can we be the ones who are on the right and left of you? The victors. That stuff gets Jesus really twitchy. And he says, you don't know what you're talking about. You're confused. You're not gonna, we're not drinking the same, you know, Kool-Aid. No, he said, you can't drink the same cup as me. Um, and, and so what does that look like? He illustrates that further by displaying a contrast between leadership or power and how that works in the world and how it works in the kingdom. This is a very important paragraph. So Jesus starts talking about how it works because we as disciples of Jesus have to start discerning what are the patterns of this world that I don't want to be conformed to and what are the, what's the renewal of my mind look like when I let Jesus lead the way? It's not going to look like the way the world uses uh, leverage and coercion in order to bend people to, to their will. This is what he says. There's something about the world that uses whatever leverage that they have in a coercive way to cause people to do what they want them to do. It will not be so amongst you. I mean, this is one of those verses where you can just take it to the bank. I am a disciple of Jesus, and Jesus just said, this is not, this is not gonna happen. Using leverage and causing people. Okay, so how does this work in our life? <coughs> well, think of one example here of confrontations. If you're in a confrontation, there are tons of things at your disposal to be able to win that confrontation or to be able to get it to go in your direction, right? And I have been accused of this a lot in my life. I am, this is very, like, this is a part of, of my own thinking and, and my own patterns, and it, and it requires a little bit of an arrogance. When you're in a confrontation and you know that you're wrong, you have to find a way to be a little bit right. And that little bit right becomes the big thing. Like that's what you're using, right? To say, this is how I win. I'm right in this conversation. And you find these little ways. And arrogance isn't thinking that you're right. It's thinking that you couldn't be wrong. And when you can't be wrong, this is what happens. This is my little piece, my little leverage that I'm gonna use to rule over this, this, you know. I've had so many times where I know that I'm coming to a confrontation and I will think of all the things that I can say to win this conversation. 
What it does is it causes division. It causes somebody to feel unheard, like they are not loved, they are not worth time or respect, and that they lo- they're, lose, they're losers. It's not gonna be so amongst the disciples of Jesus. This type of pattern is worldly. The type of pattern that is consistent with the kingdom of heaven is where somebody enters into, let's say, again, a confrontation, identifying as a servant. I mean, what would that look like? I mean, what kind of world could we develop where we have no need to win? No need to be right, to be the one that's right. Where we enter into this conversation, uh, confrontation, whatever and say, I am here as a servant. What would that look like? How much imagination do we spend even thinking about what that would look like? Preparing ourselves to be a disciple of Jesus in the midst of these tense situations. This is how we put that pattern on display um, of, that G- of the cross and, and what is consistent with Jesus. The means matter. And the means lead to the right ends. I mean, when Jesus says, there will be people seated at my right and my left, but it's just not gonna be the way that you think it's gonna be. It's gonna be two criminals. There will be a crown in glory and it will be one made of thorns. And the means define what the ends are gonna look like. Of course, I will be seated in glory in that moment, but it's not gonna be the way that the world does it. And my followers are gonna get that. So something that I've been thinking about is maybe two things. We can make a list as a community of things that nobody wants to do. Like you know at your job, there are things that nobody wants to do. And I wonder if we could just write that down and just put that before ourselves and think, if I'm gonna identify as a servant, maybe I start to just do it. Maybe I make it my thing. I used to be a painter for like a whole year. Nobody wants to paint, clean out the brushes. And it's like an extra chore. You're already done. Now you have to clean out these brushes. You have to do it really well or else they're ruined. And I decided that's going to be my thing. Nobody's going to have to say, look around. Who wants to do the brushes? I'm going to say, it's me. Give me all the brushes. And I'm going to find a way <laughs> to enjoy this and do this and be, be the guy that does the brushes. I think that this is a way that we can start to imagine a world where we are the ones who are identifying as servers, as slaves. Um, Another thing that I was thinking that we could do in a creative way would be to write like a short bio bio of yourself and use New Testament identity markers. This is something that I do on a regular basis when I walk around, just like to imagine I'm introducing myself to a bunch of strangers, but I can only use New Testament um, identity. Does anyone else do this? I mean, this is probably common, right? <laughs> Am I that bored? Um, but I like to just imagine how would the truth work its way out of my life? And so um, maybe this week, one thing you could do is three sentences or some sort of creative way of writing about, writing servant um, into your bio, you know? Like, my name is Dan Mike, and I don't talk to a lot of people about this. But I have been given an opportunity to serve following the pattern of the most famous person in the history of the world. He has welcomed me to be a disciple and a 
member of his household and his family. You know what I mean? Like if you start to talk in this way, um, I think that we're much more likely to start to live that out. If we never use our imaginations, I bet you that we'll start to put in the patterns of this world. They'll work their way into our lifestyle. And we then will just be a bunch of people who look exactly like the world with just some more rules. And it's, that's just not working. Our world is desperate to see some people say, you know what, we have a faith that is leading us to something bigger and full of hope and better where there isn't a scarcity mindset everywhere. And I've got time to be able to serve today. I've got time to be able to stop and talk to you. I've got time to listen to you in a, in a, in a confrontation and to be able to hear your heart and, and serve whatever you're thinking and, and be curious again. As we do this, we start to show the world what it looks like to be a people who pick up our cross and follow Jesus. When Jesus leads, this is what happens. The last thing that I want to say about when Jesus leads is that he leads by example. It'd be a whole nother story if Jesus was like, <laughs> I want you guys to do this, but I am not going to do that. Not only is he going to do it, he invites us in and says, follow me. He's leading the way. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Just follow me. And then he says he gave his life up as a ransom. And what I love about that line, giving it up as a ransom, is we then get to just imagine all of the things that we've done in our lives that hold us down in, in bondage. All the things that we've contributed to or have ever experienced that look at us and say, I've got you. Condemned, I have got you. And I'm saying guilty, I have got you. And saying shame, all of those things that hold on to us. Jesus looks us right in the eye and says, your debt has been paid. Your ransom has been paid. You're free. And all I want you to do is testify to that by setting other people free, the people who are around you, by serving them. Will you let him pay your ransom for you and welcome you into a kingdom where you get to, to serve one another? Am I blind? Am I letting Jesus lead the way? I wanted to bring in that Napoleon Bonaparte quote. But as I kind of got into it, it looked like it was a fake. You guys, you know, but if it's a fake, it's a fake. I, I still think it's true. I just want to read this to you. <laughs> Apocryphally attributed to uh, Napoleon, he was asked about Jesus. And the guy that he was talking to said that um, he was not, you know, sure if God could ever become a man or whatever. And, and Napoleon supposedly said, well, I know men, and Jesus Christ was no mere man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions, but the resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions a distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Sheer force. Jesus Christ alone 
founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. In every other existence but that of Christ, how many imperfections. So, just like to take a moment and just sort of pray through this and then transition to our time of uh, recognizing the saints of the past. Open our eyes to be able to see. We're here, our hearts are open, and we're looking to you, Jesus. Inspire us. Um, Put wonder again in our hearts about how to be like you in this world. If any of us are stuck in this pattern of the world that uses power in a corrupt way on a regular basis, help us to see that. Help us to be able to let that go and to know that there is another way. Jesus, we just want to be like you. So teach us your way of service and love and help us to attest to your ransom that you paid for us all by not lording things over one another, but by setting each other free. And as we remember those who have gone before us, help us to also know that we are a part of a long line of people who are faithful, who have been faithful to you. As their names are read, I know that they would give their entire name to be blotted out of history if they knew that they could make your name even greater just a little bit. But help us to see that we're all fading into this large family that you have brought, uh, that you have made, uh, you have provided for us an ability to be a part of this large, diverse, unlikely family of people who are wild, who are different, who are full of love.